Welcome to Handmade Humanity, a podcast that helps you in the lifelong pursuit of wisdom and virtue. Each week, we will explore classical literature and ideas, making them accessible to the average reader. There are no shortcuts, techniques, or methods that can substitute for judgment, dexterity, and care, because humanity is handmade. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Handmade Humanity. I'm Austin Hoffman. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about a play that has quickly become one of my favorites of Shakespeare's. It's relatively unknown, so if I say the name, you probably have not heard of it. Yet, I think it should be more well-known. I think it needs to get more recognition than it currently does. The name of the play is Coriolanus. Coriolanus. I first discovered this play uh, maybe a, a few months ago. Uh, another podcast I listened to called The Play's The Thing was discussing this play, and they mentioned a few pe- performances of it. So I immediately looked up one of the performances, uh, saw a clip of it, and right then I was hooked. And so I tracked down a, another uh, movie production of the play. I watched the play. Uh, I got a copy of it. I, I read through it. And it, to me, is incredibly gripping, uh, entertaining, and provides uh, an insightful commentary on on the body politic and the social condition, as well as on a man from Rome's history. Now, T.S. Eliot actually thought that this was Shakespeare's best play, uh, even over Hamlet. Typically, when we talk about Shakespeare's plays and tragedies, we're talking about Hamlet, Macbeth, King Lear, uh, uh, perhaps Richard II, if you're considering the histories as, as, as tragedies. Uh, yet this play uh, has a fascinating history in its own right. It, it, it comes and goes in popularity. The play itself is so malleable and open to interpretation that there's actually uh, several stretches where the play is alternatively banned and then uh, performed in the same place, depending on the interpretation of the play. So, for example, uh, within Germany, uh, this is just one illustration from uh, R.B. Parker, uh, the play was banned by the Nazis while it was a radio play. It was then adopted by the Nazis as a school text. It was then banned by the American forces in post-war Germany. And then it was rewritten for the proletariat uh, by a German playwright. And so it has this uh, right-wing, left-wing dynamic, depending on which aspects of the play get emphasized, whether it's viewed as an authoritarian or fascist uh, play, or whether it's viewed as a revolutionary and democratic play. So it it has this uh, wonderfully malleable quality to it, that it defies easy categorization. Uh, Coriolanus, uh, as a source, Shakespeare is largely drawing from Plutarch's lives. So Plutarch is a, a Roman historian who, who writes the parallel lives of Greeks and Romans, and he essentially compares uh, two eminent men from Greece and then from the history of Rome and, and tries to examine their virtue so that we can live better. Now, Coriolanus is the Roman representative, and he's compared to the Greek Alcibiades, which I hope to do an episode on in the future. Uh, the play takes place during the days of the early Republic of Rome, uh, maybe around 490 BC. Uh, Rome has already expelled the Tarquins, who were the uh, Etruscan kings ruling over the city of Rome. Uh, during this time, you should be thinking of Rome as a very small yet uh, militarily powerful city. Uh, it's not an empire. They hadn't even conquered the rest of Italy yet, and yet they're growing. Early on in the play, there is this conflict between the plebeians and the patricians. The patricians are the noble families of Rome, uh, descended from perhaps the first 100 senators named by Romulus. The plebeians are the the common people and the common class of Rome. 
This is going to be a constant tension through Rome's early history and the days of the Republic instead, until they start to invent some of the offices that can appease the plebeian interests. Now, during the time of the play, uh, there are newly added tribunes of the people, and these are the people's representatives. They are their officers, their uh, stake in the government that they can have direct control. The plot of the play itself is, is fairly simple. It opens up, and Rome is immediately in trouble. Uh, there is no grain, or at least no grain for the plebeians, and they come out and they are demanding that the senators, the noble classes, the noble families provide with them with grain so that they can make their bread. Uh, their chief enemy that they name right from the outset is Caius Martius, a great Roman soldier who has many times earned the Oaken Garland, this badge of honor for saving a, a Roman citizen. They claim that Caius Martius refuses them grain, refuses them bread, that he is their chief enemy because he is proud. Well, uh, Menenius, a Roman senator, comes out, tries to appease them, and he, he gives an illustration of Rome as a great big body, and the Senate is the belly. And this takes in all the good things, this takes in the grain, this takes in all the riches, and then it distributes to the rest of the body as it will. Uh, he is interrupted when there's an attack. Uh, by the Volskis at Coriolis. So the Volskis are a neighboring uh, a tribe or, or group near to Rome that they are uh, currently at war with. Coriolis is, is one a city nearby. And so Caius Martius, who is going to later be surnamed Coriolanus, he's the main figure of the plot, is going to travel with his general Cominius to this city, Coriolis. Um, so right away at the outset, when as soon as Caius Martius comes on the scene, he's not yet named Coriolanus, uh, he immediately says about three times, hang him, hang him, about the, the common people. He just has no patience for that uh, this stinking mass of, of commoners. Uh, and this is going to be the source of tension for him throughout the play. Well, anyways, he, he travels to Coriolis, and he, he routes them almost single-handedly. Uh, he routes the Volskians. There's a point where he is shut into the city by himself, and the rest of the army thinks he's dead. They, they give him up. And yet he emerges victorious, bearing bloody wounds on him. As a reward, Cominius, the, the general, uh, confers on him the name Coriolanus, which he is called by for the rest of the play. Well, now, having returned to Rome, the conquering hero, uh, he is welcomed. All the people are praising him. Now they love him, for he has won a great victory for Rome. Coriolanus is put up for election for consul. So consul is the chief executive office in Rome. Uh, typically, there are two. However, in this play, we're, we're only concerned with one. And part of what a citizen uh, put up for election for consul would have to do, especially a war hero, was show his wounds. So he must go in the garb of humility. He must go to the marketplace and stand with no uh, undergarment but just the outer tunic and bear his scars and say, these are the wounds that I received for Rome. Yet Coriolanus, being too noble, being too uh, absolute, refuses. He does not want to show his wounds to the people. Eventually, Menenius and his mother are able to convince him that this is something that he has to do, that everybody else has done it before, and so he consents and he goes. But while he is there... He still refuses to show his wounds to the people. He simply uh, says, give me your votes, give me your voices, so I can be consul, and then he goes on his way. Well, after this, the tribunes, who had already been plotting to overthrow Coriolanus and were already envious and jealous of his success and his power, even after he has received votes for consul from both the Senate and from the plebeians, the tribunes go back and stir up the people 
They remind him how Coriolanus has abused them, how he has hated them, how he has not spoken to them mildly. And so they stir up the people to revoke his election to consulship and to accuse him of hating the people, of aspiring to absolute power, of trying to become a, a dictator, of trying to become a monarch, uh, and of overthrowing the power of the tribunes. Well, the penalty for this that they first propose is death. So there's a, a large outcry in the city. There's a big uh, riot, essentially, and Coriolanus has to escape back to his house. Well, while he's there, uh, his mother, uh, Volumnia, and the senator, Menenius, a good family friend, come, and they try and convince him to yet again go and speak to the people in the tribunes mildly. You must speak mildly. And this word keeps being repeated as they're urging him to do this. And he, he consents. His mother tries to make a number of arguments, but ultimately none of them work. So she finally just says, I'm your mother and you'll do as I say. And he says, I'm going, mother. I'm going. You, you don't need to chide me anymore. But this is, this is the real source of tension for Coriolanus. So Plutarch says that he is of such a noble nature that he cannot stoop. Right? He cannot humble himself. And this comes up again and again and again, that the problem for Coriolanus comes when he must speak to the people whom he absolutely despises. Well, uh, he is unsuccessful at convincing the tribunes uh, to let him be consul, uh, and they know just where to poke him. And so they accuse him, and he, he erupts. He gives one of uh, my favorite uh, short speeches uh, back to the tribunes, and he is exiled from the city. Well, then... In a stunning turn of events, he goes straight to Tullus Ophidius, who is the leader of the enemy Volskians, or the Volskis. So he goes right to Rome's greatest enemy and greatest threat and his greatest rival, who he has battled with earlier in the play, and joins him. Together, these two men, Tullus and Caius Martius Coriolanus, return to attack Rome, and they are about to burn the city. They are... No one can stand before Coriolanus and Tullus Ophidius, and so they destroy Roman armies. They're, they're coming to burn the city. His old general, Cominius, goes out to try and plead for Rome's safety. His senator friend, Menenius, goes out to plead with him, but no one can have any effect. No one can convince him to turn and change his mind, as has been the custom of Coriolanus. He is too absolute. So finally, his mother, his wife, and his child go. They plead with him to spare the city. They plead with him for honor's sake, uh, for the sake of his friends. And then finally, his mother uh, just is about to walk away and just says, well, you should, you should think of your family, or uh, I should have known that you were not a Roman. You're from Coriolis. Your mother and your wife and your children are actually in Coriolis. You are no Roman. And then Coriolanus breaks down weeping. He relents. Volumnia, his mother, is able to return to Rome the victor. She can claim she has secured peace between Rome and the Volskis. Coriolanus, on the other hand, returns to Aphidius, where he is murdered. So this play I find endlessly fascinating, uh, mainly because of the character of Caius Martius Coriolanus. And one of the, the problems that many people have with the play is that he doesn't seem to be a sympathetic character. They say he's just a jerk. He isn't likable at all. You can't get, uh, become vested in a play if you hate the main character. At, right? As the main character goes, so goes the rest of the play. If you can't stand the person who is on the stage most of the time, you're not going to enjoy the play very much. From the very first scene, 
Caius Martius is accusing the plebeians. He's railing against the tribunes. He's calling them all sorts of names. Uh, he says, I'll only talk to them if they, they wash their faces and clean their teeth. He thinks they're dirty, they're disgusting, they're unable to make up their minds about anything, they're, they're transigent. They'll sit around and talk about what's happening in the Senate, but they don't have a clue what's going on. And he thinks he is, they are the main root of the problem at Rome. As one character says about Coriolanus, uh, he is deliberately courting the hatred of the people. It would be one thing if he was just indifferent to their loves or their hates, but he goes out of his way to make them hate him. And so he doesn't seem very likable. However, I think there's something to uh, Coriolanus's character and his treatment of the plebeians because he's absolutely right. Whenever he accuses the, the tribunes of something, he's correct in his accusation. Uh, they are unable to make up their minds. They are constantly changing. They are manipulators and power-hungry. They are uh, undoing the good things of, of Rome. In one sense, Caius Martius strikes a very noble character because he's unwilling to compromise his principles. He will not stoop. He will not flatter. He will not play a part that uh, is against his nature, but he must be true to who he is. That should be a very familiar theme to our modern world, that we praise those who are true to themselves, that will not fit uh, a mold that is imposed by society. So why should we treat Coriolanus any different? One of the things that often comes up when discussing tragedies is the tragic flaw. So according to Aristotle's uh, teaching on tragedy, the hero, uh, the tragic hero, has to be good, otherwise you won't pity him and fear his fate, uh, but he can't be so good that he doesn't deserve what's coming to him. So he has to have some kind of flaw, some kind of central sin that uh, he is going to suffer for. But he can't be so wicked that you you're rejoice when he has his downfall. So it's, it's some kind of uh, good character who has just one fatal flaw. And this is the way that classical tragedy typically uh, examines plays of this kind. There's one root sin. There's a number of tragic flaws we might suggest for Coriolanus. Right? He is proud over and over and over again. People uh, from various walks and sections uh, accuse him of being proud. The people in the tribunes accuse him of pride. Uh, he can't uh, bear to have his deeds and his wounds recounted. So there's a number of times where uh, Cominius or, or others have to stand and recount what he suffered for Rome, and he hates it. He refuses to sit there and hear his nothings monstered. Uh, it, it's almost great on him to receive praise. He's too high and noble for that. He hates to stand for counsel by showing his wounds. He won't humble himself. He won't wear the gown of humility. Um, the way he reacts when he is exiled and accused by the tribunes, right, reveals that this is touching him very deeply. He explodes at them. Listen to this speech. You common cry of curs, whose breath I hate as reek of the rotten fens, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air, I banish you. And here remain with your uncertainty. Let every feeble rumor shake your hearts. Your enemies, with nodding of their plumes, fan you into despair. Have the power still to banish your defenders, till at length your ignorance, which finds not till it feels, making but reservation of yourselves, still your own foes, deliver you as most abated captives to some nation that won you without blows. Despising for you the city, thus I turn my back. There is a world elsewhere. 
So you have this great moment where he is being banished by the Tribunes, but he turns around and says, I banish you. Right. Stay here with your uncertainty, with your feebleness, with your fickleness. Let some foreign nation come in and, and win you without blows as you banish your defender. Uh, it's wonderful. But yet he's proud. Uh, he, he can't stand to have this disgrace come. At the very end of the play, uh, what sets him off again uh, as Ophidius begins to turn on him is after Coriolanus breaks down weeping at the pleas of his mother, she goes away, the, the victor, he stays with the Volskis. Ophidius calls him the boy of tears. Boy of tears. And this sticks in uh, Coriolanus's mind, and he immediately reacts. Cut me to pieces, Volskis. Men and lads, stain all your edges on me. Boy, false hound, if you have rich or annals true, tis there that like an eagle in a dovecote I flattered your Volskians and Coriolis. Alone I did it. Boy. And he just cannot contain himself. So pride may be Coriolanus's flaw. There's also ingratitude that frequently throughout the play, this idea of being ungrateful, of being unwilling to accept praise or thanks, or to stand in humility and simply say, you're welcome. He can't bear to have his wounds remembered. Uh, after the battle at, at Coriolis, uh, Cominius is trying to give him gifts. He wants to give a tenth of the spoil. He gives him the name Coriolis. He wants to honor him. Uh, Caius Martius is refusing all of this, but then he does ask something. Right, there was somebody in Coriolis who gave him shelter, who at one time was kind to him. And Cominius is like, sure, I'll free him. I'll make sure that he doesn't end up a slave. But yet, Coriolanus cannot remember his name. Right, it's, it's ingratitude. He's ungrateful. Uh, perhaps another flaw that we might propose is that he is too absolute and too noble. His nature is too high that it cannot bend itself or humble itself. So the tribunes accuse him of speaking as a god. When the uh, tribunes begin to tr pronounce judgment on him in uh, another situation, he erupts and says, Hear you this triton of the minnows with his absolute shall. And he cannot uh, bend to the legal system and the, the constitutional system of Rome that gives a voice to the people. He himself absolutely hates compromise of any kind, either with his own nature or within the political system. If Coriolanus had his way, there would be absolute power for someone. Whether it's him or somebody else, it doesn't really matter. He just hates the idea that this, this common mass, uh, this rabble, can have a voice in government because they choose stupid things. He refuses to act or flatter, despite uh, Menenius and his mother counseling him to do so. He refuses flattery for himself. Menenius is going to say about him, His nature is too noble for the world. He would not flatter Neptune for his trident, or Jove for his power to thunder. His heart's in his mouth. What his breast forges, that his tongue must vent, and being angry does forget that ever he heard the name of death. His mother will condemn him for being too absolute. He cannot answer mildly as he was counseled by everybody in his life who is, is, is for his good. Ophidius is going to comment about him. Yet his nature in that's no changeling, and I must excuse what cannot be amended. Right? He, he cannot humble himself. He cannot uh, lower himself. He cannot fit within the systems. Uh, perhaps because of this, he is vulnerable to manipulation by others, right? especially his mother. Now, so Plutarch actually writes that even after he was married, he does not leave his mother's house. He does not start his own home, but he stays there. 
Uh, and this is the jibe which Ophidius attacks him with. You boy of tears, for a few drops of room, you sacrificed our, our Volskian state. You gave in. So Coriolanus is absolute, and yet he is vulnerable to manipulations. The tribunes play him like a fiddle. They, are, they know just where to push. They know just how to tweak him because he will not uh, suffer fools. Uh, he will not suffer any of these things. Aphidius himself, within the play, seems to describe uh, Coriolanus' faults, and he's going to conclude that there is some mixture of all of these things. Whether t'was pride, which out of daily fortune ever taints the happy man, whether defect of judgment, to fail in the disposing of those chances which he was lord of, or whether nature, not to be other than one thing, not moving from the cask to the cushion, but commanding peace even with the same austerity and garb as he controlled the war. But one of these, as he hath spices of them all, not all, for I dare so far free him, made him feared, so hated, and so banished. So he says that whether a combination of pride, defect of judgment, or the nature that he cannot be other than what he was. He had no ability to adapt from war to the Senate House or, or the consulship. He was too fixed in his nature. Uh, whatever it was, he had, had mixes of all of these faults, and so he was banished. And so he is going to be killed by Ophidius at the end of the play. So I find this, this character fascinating. I don't understand why people don't uh, like Coriolanus as a character. Uh, he has a nobility to him. He has a virtue to him, this unflexing, this unrelenting force of will that won't flatter, that won't humble himself. Don't we hate the, the politician who will say anything to get the job? Don't we hate the person who is always uh, affirming uh, whatever you say and, and cannot offer you uh, truth? He's a yes man. While we might enjoy these people for a little while, they're not helpful. They, they cannot offer you anything uh, that is needed. Yet we also see the weakness of those who are too distant, who are too far removed, who are too austere and firm. Uh, nobody really likes to be around them. They don't feel approachable. They, are, they offend us as much as they help us. We tend to envy them and, and perhaps try to pull them down. I think this, this is pointing to the flaw in Coriolanus, but also instructive for us as we, we seek to interact in these different relationships that we have. So if you're in a position of authority, uh, whether you are a parent or whether you are a teacher or you have some position of authority at your job, I, I think this is very instructive because we need to balance both this nobility, this, this highness, this distance, with lowliness, with humility. We are trying to balance both of these things. Right? If you're too low, if you're too approachable, you're a fool. We can all think of the teacher who is trying so hard to be just like his students. Well, there's nothing for them to imitate there. Uh, they don't respect him more for being like them. They actually respect him less because he's just an old man trying to, to be young again. You know, this is kind of the same thing that happens with businesses or corporations when they try and adopt the vernacular of the day on social media and they try and get hip with language and they try and, and launch all these silly campaigns and it, it tends to, to backfire. Uh, because it's, it's fake. It's, it's not real. Uh, that isn't their actual personality. They're not any more approachable for doing so. They're just making fools of themselves. But yet we also recognize that if you are too authoritarian, if you're too high, people treat you as a tyrant. Uh, they tend to try, to try and get away with things. This makes them envious and rebellious. It's a tyrannizing image. It's, it's trying to live up to a standard that seems impossible, that, that, that horrifying nature of perfection. 
So Quintilian actually wrote something about teachers with about the same idea. So he says, let the teacher therefore adopt a parental attitude to his pupils and regard himself as the representative of those who have committed their children to his charge. Let him be free from vice himself and refuse to tolerate it in others. Let him be strict, but not austere, genial, but not too familiar, for austerity will make him unpopular while familiarity breeds contempt. Let his discourse continually turn on what is good and honorable. The more he admonishes, the less he will have to punish. He must control his temper without, however, shutting his eyes to faults requiring correction. His instruction must be free from affectation, his industry great, his demands on his class continuous, but not extravagant. So there you hear Quintilian describing what a teacher needs to be, and he needs to balance both of these dynamics. He needs to be noble and worthy of imitation himself. He must not tolerate faults in others. He must be willing to correct where necessary, but yet he cannot be so strict uh, that he is austere and that he is unpopular and that he loses any impact on his pupils. He must also be familiar. He must also be genial. He must be kind. He, he must be likable, but yet taken too far and he becomes contemptible. So you have this, this dynamic between the high and the low, and Coriolanus is unable to navigate that. He can only do the high. I find another interesting dynamic about Coriolanus' character is that he almost has the nature of a Christ figure. So he enters Coriolanus' mortal gate and then comes out reborn as a god. He's going to say later that Cominius uh, godded me. Uh, Cominius, when describing what Caius Martius accomplished at Coriolanus, he struck Coriolanus like a planet. The tribunes are going to accuse Coriolanus of being too much like a god. He speaks to the people as if he were a god to punish not a man of their infirmity. So he almost has this death and resurrection happening at Coriolis, where he enters in, he's as good as dead, but then he comes out reborn as a god. He also uh, has this almost triumphal entry type experience where he comes to Rome as their savior, as, as their lord, and all the people are welcoming him and loving him. But then just a few acts later, he's going to be expelled from the city. He's going to suffer outside the camp. And then, of course, at the very end, he is offered as a sacrifice to save the city. And so you have these, these illusions, these Christ-like imitations of Coriolanus within this. But, of course, he is, he is not Christ. He, he can't save Rome from its greatest flaw, its greatest problem, which is that it is devouring itself. It needs to devour uh, both the plebeians and other great men like Coriolis uh, in order to survive. It's ungrateful. Which leads me to another aspect of the play that I find endlessly fascinating and intellectually stimulating, is that as a political play, uh, Shakespeare is offering insightful commentary on the dynamics within a republic. So you have all of these tensions. You have the senators versus the plebeians. You have one good and noble man against the people. He's pointing out the ability of the demagogues, these tribunes, to flatter and manipulate the people. They tell them what to say. They say, look, we taught you your lessons. We showed you what you were supposed to do about Coriolanus. Put in contrast to them, we can see Coriolanus's nobility coming through because he refuses to do this. The tribunes are just manipulators. It's, it's quite open what they're doing. Uh, they are maneuvering the powers of state so that they can have more power. Uh, Shakespeare is also showing the fickleness of democracy. The people hate him, then they love him, then they hate him again, and then they fear him, and then they love him again. Uh, they, they are bouncing back and forth. Uh, there's one character in the play, one of the, the citizens, who says, if our thoughts were not contained by our heads, they would fly east, west, north, south, they'd go in every direction. 
Uh, democracies, uh, populism, is inherently fickle. It cannot make up its mind. But perhaps the greatest fault occurring in Rome is this pride and ingratitude. Coriolanus is not the only proud uh, citizen in the state. The tribunes are also proud. Uh, Menenius frequently warns them of their own pride. Uh, there's almost a dynamic of imitation and envy happening between the tribunes and Coriolanus. But there's also ingratitude that the citizens themselves say, ingratitude is monstrous, and for the multitude to be ungrateful were to make a monster of the multitude. And this is their great fault. They cannot be grateful to Coriolanus, and so they must exile him. They cannot tolerate great men. And this is one of the problems of democracy. So in Athenian democracy, whenever somebody would become too uh, great a personality, too large in the assembly, they would ostracize them. They would write their name on a shard of pottery, and they would be kicked out of the city for, I think it was about 10 years or something like that. But they cannot tolerate great men. Everybody has to be equal. Everybody has to be on the same footing. And thus, they are ungrateful. I think another tension in the play that, that Coriolanus is, is speaking to, the play Coriolanus, is the need for a mixed government. So I talked about this in the episode on Polybius and anacyclosis, the cycle of regimes, that if you uh, picture uh, political um, arrangements as a spectrum, if you go too far to the democratic side, then the state begins to collapse. Uh, it, it consumes itself with envy. Uh, those that are rich have their money stripped away from them. Uh, those that are, are powerful and, and noble are, have to be humbled and brought down through accusations, through different lawsuits and sham trials. Uh, if they ever had any fault, they must be absolutely brought uh, low. They must be debased. They must be humbled. Yet if you move too far to the authoritarian side, then you're prone to revolutions. Uh, the poor can't eat, and so if they're starving, they're going to rise up in revolution. If you go too far to either side, if either the, the democratic element or the aristocratic or authoritarian element gets too large and powerful, the state collapses. This is anacyclosis. Uh, those are inherently unstable. So I think we, we need to be worried about uh, both of those things. But the play Coriolanus is showing us the need for moderation. Right? Both Coriolanus and the tribunes cannot moderate their impulses. So they rise up in war against each other, and they're tearing the city apart. One of them gets banished, but then he comes right back with an army. Uh, this is ripping the city apart from the inside. Uh, they are devouring each other. Uh, the city is a cannibal city that eats its own because they cannot uh, abide either power. I think one of the, the best characters in the play, Menenius, uh, is repeatedly trying to moderate between these sides. He's trying to calm down the noble impulses of Coriolanus. He's telling him to speak mildly. He's telling him to humble himself. He's trying to restrain uh, some of his more authoritarian impulses. But he also castigates and excoriates the tribunes for just being stupid and, and, and uh, destroying Rome with their folly. And Menenius is this, this moderating impulse between them and the Senate. And this is how a state should function uh, when it is properly governed. So James Madison, when he's, he's talking about the federal government in the Federalist Papers, uh, the greatest danger that he saw was factions. That if you have different groups, even if you have a majority faction, uh, this is going to rip apart the, the United States from within. And so he's structuring the different elements in order to minimize factions. Right? This is the, the impetus behind the Electoral College. It's trying to encourage uh, soliciting votes from broad swaths and constituencies instead of going to the major population centers. Because you're trying to avoid uh, these major factions. 
Instead, you want a cross-section of the United States. You want everyone to have a representation uh, without being uh, blown over by the larger population centers. The Senate and the House and the, the President, uh, the way Congress and, and the federal government is structured is, is meant to balance these powers. So you're supposed to have these different parties and coalitions that have to gather uh, up people from different walks of life in order to succeed. It's trying to avoid the factions. Now, sometimes we think, well, as long as it's a majority faction, that's okay, right? As long as 60% of the people decide they want something, that's okay. That's an acceptable faction. That was not so for the Federalists. That was not so for James Madison. He saw that you can have a tyranny of the majority, right? The, the population, uh, the, the populace is not always right. What democracy decides is not always good. And so he's intentionally putting in checks on populism, checks on democracy. So I think the play Coriolanus is incredibly instructive in this, is that it's showing us the dangers of both this authoritarian impulse and of this populist impulse. As I mentioned in that show on Polybius, that we're seeing impulses towards both. We kind of see the authoritarian side coming out, but we also see the populist side coming out. And I think we need to beware of both of them. Uh, both of them are inherently unstable and will destroy the regime. One of the other elements in this play that I'm starting to tease out is this idea of mimetic envy. So René Girard was a French philosopher who talks a lot about his theory of mimetic envy. Essentially, the way it works is that people come into conflict not because they're different, but because they actually want the same thing and there are a finite number of goods. This is the basis behind every uh, you know, high school love triangle or every uh, romantic comedy uh, love triangle, that, that two guys fall in love with the same girl, uh, they used to be friends, and this is what brings them into conflict with one another. But what... Girard points out is that they actually fall in love with the same girl, uh, not primarily based on the, the girl's uh, individual attractiveness or beauty, but because they are friends, they are imitating each other's desires. And so one of these guys uh, falls in love with the girl, and then his friend falls in love with her because his friend loved her. Right? It's this imitative uh, version of desire. So you can, this is the basis behind social media marketing. You see somebody else likes something, somebody else enjoys something, and so you want it too. Now that's fine if there's an unlimited quantity of goods, but when there is a finite quantity of goods, we start to come into conflict. And you can see this actually happening in the play. All right, so people are coming into conflict because they're similar, not because they're different, and they are learning desires from each other. So the tribunes in Coriolanus are both guilty of pride, as they often say. And there's almost this dynamic that they are imitating each other and vying for supremacy because the other one does. That the tribunes want to be supreme because Coriolanus does. Coriolanus uh, wants to be absolute because the tribunes are vying for absolute power. And this is why they keep accusing each other of this. They keep accusing each other of trying to get control of the Roman state. So after the tribunes accuse Coriolanus of acting like a god, he comes right back and calls them the Triton of the Minnows. So they are like a Neptune, but it's a Neptune over the, you know, the populace, the people. Further, uh, Coriolanus and Ophidius are embroiled in this mimetic envy. Um, so this is one theme that I didn't have much time to, to get into in the show, but Coriolanus and Ophidius are very much like each other. Uh, they talk frequently throughout the play that if the whole world was divided into two and they ended up on the same side, they would default to the other side so they could keep making wars with the other. Uh, they are uh, both prime warriors, uh, excellent at what they do, and they both hate and love each other for it. So when Coriolanus switches sides and goes over to Aphidius' side, this works while they are achieving the same goal of destroying the Roman state, 
but there's also these rumblings that they are both after glory. Uh, they are both striving uh, and stirring each other up towards honor, yet only one can be supreme. And so Ophidius starts grumbling that Coriolanus is becoming too proud and too high, and he is going to destroy him, which does happen at the end of the play, uh, that this mimetic envy ends up devouring its participants. So also in Rene Girard's theory of mimetic envy, that if this is allowed to continue unchecked, uh, it eventually breaks down societies, and that uh, violence and riots, discontentment continues to boil up and bubble up as everybody's imitating each other's desires and they're coming into conflict over it until you get a scapegoat. That one person is chosen. All of the faults are blamed on them. They are killed or they are exiled, and then this they are then hailed as the savior of the city, the one who, who brought peace. So you see this dynamic with Julius Caesar, that he is assassinated, um, but then, I think it's right before it, he, he dreams of this, he has this dream where there's a statue of Caesar, so actually it's somebody else that has the dream, a statue of Caesar that's spouting out these great uh, spigots of blood, and the Romans are coming and they are sucking the drops of reviving blood from Caesar. That he is the scapegoat, he is the problem, he is the one who is overthrowing the Republic, but yet his death is also what gives life to the Republic, so it's this... this uh, double vision that happens with the scapegoat, uh, that after the victim is killed, he becomes worshipped as a god and as a savior. And you have this idea of cannibalism and the scapegoat mechanism occurring in Coriolanus as well. The play starts with the plebeians demanding bread, and it ends with Coriolanus as their meal, as their supper. Uh, Menenius is asking the tribunes who the wolf loves, and they say they love the lamb. The wolf loves the lamb because uh, it may devour him. And of course, this is referring to Coriolanus. The tribunes are going to devour Coriolanus. Uh, throughout the play, there are all of these illustrations of the, the body. Uh, there's limbs, there's diseased members, uh, there's the belly that provides these. And yet, this body is devouring itself. Uh, it is eating itself. A Volumnia is going to say that anger is my meat. I sup upon myself and so shall starve with feeding. Ophidius and, and Caius Martius are referred to as cannibally given to one another. That the problem in Roman society, that they cannot moderate these two factions, it ends up devouring itself, uh, also because of their, their ingratitude. And so at the end of the play, Coriolanus is offered up as a sacrifice by his mother. Uh, he knows what is going to happen as soon as he relents. Uh, perhaps Volumnia does too. I, I mean, I think she has to know what's going to happen to her son as a result of this peace that she's making, and yet she manipulates him anyways. She goes back to Rome and is hailed as the savior while he is sacrificed. But yet the irony is, is that as they blamed him as the, the great uh, troubler of Rome, um, after he is dead, they welcome him and they, they praise him as their savior. He is the one who made peace for them. So you have this scapegoating mechanism occurring where he is offered up as the sacrificial victim, the problem, but then he is also the hero. So Coriolanus, it's a fascinating play. I've tried to touch on a few of these different themes that have come out as I've been reading it, as I've been uh, watching it. Uh, I hope you'll take the time to try and find either a movie or a play production of this work by Shakespeare and that you'll enjoy it as much as I have. Uh, some renditions that I would recommend. Uh, there's a 2011 uh, film, Coriolanus by Ray Fiennes and Gerard Butler. Uh, I really like this this play. It's set in the Balkans, right? It has it's it's performed as a movie. It's it's not really just a recorded play. Uh, the Coriolanus in it, played by Ray Fiennes or Voldemort, 
right? He's he's very violent and explosive, right? He's a large man, and so he's a, cuts an imposing figure, especially when he tears into the tribunes or the people. You get the sense that Coriolanus is just barely holding on to his temper and his anger, and he just explodes at at moments in in the the film. So I'd highly recommend that version if you can get your hands on it. It's probably at a lot of libraries or, or video stores. Another one that is probably my favorite version uh, stars Tom Hiddleston. Uh, was produced by the Donmar Warehouse, uh, and I believe National Theatre Live currently has the rights to it, or or at least has the recording of it. So you can get a National Theatre Live uh, like home production, or home subscription, or something like that available on you know your your iOS device, probably on Android. It's like fifteen dollars a month, so you can do it for a month and then then cancel it. But it's worth it to watch their rendition of Coriolanus. Uh, Tom Hiddleston plays a much smoother, uh, more subtle Coriolanus. You get the sense that he could flatter. He could act, he could play the part, but he just refuses to, right? He, he has the, the quality that could make him a good consul, but he refuses to humble himself. Uh, so that is probably my favorite version. Uh, you know, Tom Hiddleston, Donmar Warehouse, uh, you can get it at National Theater Live. I've heard a lot of people like the Alan Howard uh, production. Uh, I tried, tried to watch it. I, I'm going to get it again, but I wasn't able to get into it. It's, it's a bit dated and old. I didn't find his Coriolanus that compelling. I thought he was kind of whiny uh, and, and nasally, so I, I didn't make it very far in that one, but I'll probably try it again. But anyways, that one's out there if you'd, you'd like to look for that production. But I'd highly recommend find a version to watch uh, and enjoy this fantastic play. I think it should be more well-known than it is. Thank you for listening to another episode of Handmade Humanity. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, please go ahead and share this episode on your social media platform. That really helps uh, get it in front of more people. And I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode.